Hi, this is Christopher Perrin with Renewing Classical Education. Uh, it's a podcast. It's a part of the True North Podcast Network. And I'm really pleased today to do a kind of co-branded podcast with Davies Owens, who does Basecamp Live. Uh, it has been doing it for several years and uh, records uh, classical educators from all kinds of uh, places, walks, regions, and also has a particular a concern, I would say it's a passion, for educating parents regarding the renewal of classical education. So you'll find this podcast, this conversation that we're about to have is going to be available on Basecamp Live as well as Renewing Classical Education. Uh, Davis, could you just tell tell my audience a little bit about what you do on Basecamp Live and why you do it? Great, great question, Chris. It's great to be with you. You know, I've, uh, you and I keep looking at the calendar going, wow, another year has ticked by. I think I'm in uh, in my second, uh, 20th year plus in classical Christian education. And I just know, I mean, we obviously care deeply about being in loco parentis and partnership with parents. And yet um, it's hard on a day-to-day basis to be really an active community and conversation on that occasional back to school night. And so for, for going on seven years now, Basecamp Live is basically kind of using this analogy, if if we're going to raise a generation to what often feels like the top of Mount Everest over that 18-year journey, along the way, we need to stop at base camps, sit by the fire, have conversations, share best practices, encourage one another. So that's what this podcast has been about for all those years. We kind of talk in kind of three categories, uh, classical 101, why do we uh, wear uniforms and teach Latin, do these things that are so increasingly countercultural. We have really good reasons for them. They stood the test of time. Secondly, we talk about parenting 101. Um, you know, I was of late quote the statistic I read. Pew did a study that said 20% of families today live um, only 20% live within a hundred mile radius of their extended family. So we have generations today that are growing up parenting with no grandparents around, really no good friends around, and, and parenting honestly by YouTube, and that's not the best way to do it. So we want to be part of helping best practices for parenting, and then thirdly, just Maybe it's because I was a sociology major, but I'm always fascinated. You know, while classical Christian education, uh, like the in, you know, the gospel is obviously the same yesterday and for and today and forever. God is that way. The gospel is that way. But the culture around us is changing. It's, you know, the pressure points, the the things that we need to think more deeply about. So those are also conversation pieces of the podcast. But um, yeah, it's it's an important opportunity to collaborate with our parents and with educators. About half the folks that listen are in K-12 classical Christian schools um, all around the world. Well, thank you for co-hosting with me. Really, you're going to be the main host. So uh, with that, uh, I'll turn it over to you for the conversation that we're going to have. I'm surprised to hear that uh, I've already done this five times with you over the years. You have, and it's um, it's an, it's it's a tribute to the fact that you do such a, a wonderful job. You're such a for folks that don't know you, I encourage you to get to know Chris and Classical Academic Press and the great work you guys do on so many fronts furthering this movement. So we always have great things to talk about. And actually, it was one of your wonderful substacks that I came across on friendship. And I thought this is a really important topic. And uh, Chris, I was thinking about the old adage that, you know, you'll be the same person you are 10 years from now, with the exception of two things. One, uh, the books you read, or maybe the things you're looking at line on. And, and secondly, the friends you keep. And so friendship is really critical. And it's one of those kind of best kept secrets of, of a lot of our schools, but maybe we don't think of it in the level of depth and substance of what you've thought about. So thanks for being here today. I Maybe just, what is friendship, Chris? <laughs> well, it, it, it is, Aristotle says it's, it's, it's uh, two souls 
essentially it's uh, two bodies and one soul. Uh, you know, we we two bodies sharing a soul. There's there's uh, another another uh, another. I think it was Cicero said it's a second self. Your your friend is a second self. We don't really know ourselves until we have a good friend. You you really you really need a, a fine bright mirror to look in. Uh, in order to see yourself, and that's another another person who who loves you and cares for you. So we've all experiences where we kind of find ourselves in a friendship, and we also find that among friends we discover not only ourselves but we discover other friends. Uh, uh, Lewis kind of famously said this about Tolkien. He said that um, Something about, and I may have this quite wrong, uh, who, just who it was who died, but he, I think he said is when Charles, William, Charles Williams died, Lewis lost a piece of Tolkien because there was something uh, in Tolkien that only came out in the presence of Williams. And I'm sure you have this experience, Davies, where there's a, a certain relative or a certain friend that once that person walks into the room, uh, a certain part of Davies comes out that otherwise is not is easily welcomed. I have that experience. There's a couple of people who, be, because they're they're a, they're a bit deranged, uh, they think my sense of humor is especially funny when it's when it's only very moderately funny. And so when I'm around these people, um, I start I start turning on my humor because they are the best audience I've I've ever experienced. And so I become a kind of clown around these people, and I love it. My wife does not. <laughs> So friends, friends are revelatory in that way. Well, they really, and you think about like, you know, it's kind of maybe an odd example. We think about in the prisons, like the worst form of incarceration is solitary confinement. I mean, why is that so horrific? It's because you have no, not only do you not, you have no human contact, you have no friendships, which are life, a lifeblood. That's right. And so it's, it's of course, per, a good, good friends and friendship is pertinent to all of life. Uh, we it was not good for Adam to be alone. Uh, we are we are to be in community, in families, and in friendships, uh, and all kinds of uh, you know collaborations and communities. Uh, it's it's certainly true though. Therefore, in education, it's 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 true in classrooms. It's true in homeschools. It's it's true in the relationship between father and child, mother and child. So there's a sense in which you can use friendship as a lens of, on all of education because it's a relationship between a teacher and a student. And as Christ says in Luke 6, uh, you know, when a student has been fully trained, he will be like his, his teacher. Um, so we have all around us guides who sometimes are mirrors to us and they show us ourselves, but, there's, but sometimes they're windows uh, who also uh, show us the world in ways we otherwise could not see. Um, I'm thinking in the same passage, Luke 6 says that, where, you know, he says, uh, if, a, if a blind man leaves a blind man, will they not both fall into a pit? But a student, when he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. So apparently a good teacher is the opposite of a blind man. A good teacher is someone who is helping you to see things, who guides you. Well, and I think that's essentially you bring up that, that point because friendship is, and we tend to think of it, I think as parents initially, it's just I want my children to be around you know, good peers, or, you know, we want to be able to go to the birthday party and not have to worry about things that are being said and done by other families. Cause we're sort of of like mind and we're on this journey together, but it's multi it's the dimensions as you've brought out are so much richer. It's not just 
child to child, it's it's child to parent, it's child to teacher. And and really to your point, as we look in the within the realm of education, you know, there is no value neutral education. And if you're gonna whether your child sits at a government school or sits in a classical Christian school, there is a there is a very real impact that that relationship, that friendship will have on the outcome of the student. It's a very serious reality, way beyond just the academics themselves. So yeah, talk more about that. Parents know this instinctively, but I think we've we've learned it even before we were parents. But parents know that who your children hang out with is critical to who they become. And, you know, there's the proverb that bad company corrupts good morals. But there's also all the language in scripture and elsewhere about the 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 way friendship cultivates and leads. Um, Christ saying, for example, I no longer call you uh, servants, but friends. Uh, and Christ becomes the friend to 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 all of us. He becomes the older brother, who uh, who who loves as as a brother. And he also says, you know, no greater love has anyone than a, than a man lay down his life for a friend. So when you have people who um, are laying down lives and making sacrifices because of their own maturity, maybe because of the friends they've had in the past, such that they give what they received, um, it's powerfully transforming and we instinctively know that. So this is why parents get asked the question, what's the class like that my son is going to be entering into? Tell, tell me about this sixth grade class. Who are the students? Who are the families? And of course, we ask, who is the teacher? Uh, we want to know not just what the curriculum is, what's going to be taught. We want to know who are the people, what are they like, because they teach. In fact, in the, in the classical tradition, the, the teacher was considered to be the text. The teacher was the curriculum. The teacher embodied, say, mathematics or history or literature, was so well acquainted with the art that textbooks as we now understand them were not really used or needed. Uh, the teacher would teach you geometry and you would create your own text from his lectures and proofs and theorems and propositions and so forth. You would make your, you would create the text, essentially writing it from and off of the soul of your teacher. So it's who, then what, when it comes to, to teaching. And really the idea of, of, of apprenticing. I mean, you're, you're sitting under the tutelage of this wiser person, hopefully, which it's a great point, Chris, because I think when, you know, the, the Gordon Leadership Program that I have the privilege of teaching in um, on institutional advancement, I mean, one of the big points we make in the class is just that, uh, you know, when we build websites to promote our schools, we often are coming at it from the standpoint of, you know, here's here's the what, not the why, that's a, that's one issue. But a number of years ago, I had a mom say, you, you do realize when we're, we perspectives are looking at a school and considering it, the number one issue is actually well, first of all, will I fit in, as, fit in as the mom? Like, I mean, show me some pictures of other moms because I want to make sure these are people I can do life with and be friends with. You know, I'm a working mom and they're all homeschool moms. Like, is that, how's that going to work out? Or, and then, you know, when you get above about fourth or fifth grade, students actually ask them, like, wait, my parents want to trans, you know, trans, transition me to this new classical Christian school down the street. What's that going to look like? And they're, they're not into the curriculum initially. They're really into is this going to be a community for me? So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we both of us in our past have been heads of school, and we've seen this. Uh, it's often the mom coming in with a, a child in tow to look at the school. 
Now, just make an observation about that. Um, in most public schools, you won't ever get into a classroom to see anything. To see, in some public schools, you're not welcome at any time when, when, when classes are in operation. You can't come down the hall. Uh, but, well, we didn't do that. We, we said uh, parents are partners. And so you're we, you know, in the school that, that I was a part of, parents were invited at any time. We encouraged parents to come in at any time and sit in the back of the class, observe, uh, see what's happening, get to know the teachers, get to know the students. And many parents did take us up on that. And so we'd see parents coming in and out of the school. Parents were volunteering. Parents were partners. Parents were co-teachers. We're all doing this together. And parents are ultimately responsible for the education of their children, in our view. So there's just, uh, there should, that's, that's friendship. That's community. That's an, an understanding that we do this together in a, in a partnership among people who share the same ideals and goals and love the same children. That creates community, that creates friendship, as does a good, a good classical curriculum, uh, you know, learning to love the things that are lovely. Um, you know, sometimes it's projects that create friendships. You know, if you and I were to find ourselves uh, working together, uh, doing anything, painting a house, repairing a car, uh, you know, going on a hike, uh, trying to get to the, the summit, you know, we would, we would find friendship and conversation because of a common cause, a common goal. So that's a part of what should be happening in a robust uh, classical Christian school. But the curriculum emphasizes it too, because we'll be reading you know, people like Aristotle and Augustine. We'll be reading things that we're putting ourselves at the feet of other tutors, such that these authors, as well as the arts themselves, become friends to us. So it's you know, many of us who have, well, I mentioned Lewis and Tolkien, so I'll just mention them again. You and I have read Lewis and, Lewis and Tolkien, and if, after reading them enough, they become friends. They start to live in you and talk to you. They become close to you. Uh, and, and that's sad if someone hasn't had that experience. So that kind of friendship is also kicking in. But then let me just make a mention, since you mentioned web page, this is a bit of a tangent, but I wonder what you, th I wonder what you think of it. Um, often I'll look at the the web page of, of a school, some, some of them are fairly established, and there is not a faculty page, or there's not a very good one, like maybe a list of names and faces, and that's it, but you don't get to know them. Whereas the, you know, I think the schools that are doing better show, showcase the faculty page, and it's easy to find, and they're you know, lovely photographs and a little bio, and maybe even an opportunity to email that teacher which is the way I think that you sh the center of the school is the faculty. Uh, so why don't, why, don't, why, don't, why don't schools do that more often, Davies? That's a great question, Chris. And I think that's kind of back to, well, honestly, the secret sauce, I love that term, of a classical Christian school really is this vibrant living community. And, and yet, you're right, most faculty pages, they're all sort of stoically standing in front of a, a shrub or a brick wall and kind of, you know, pensively smiling. And it's like, well, what if we showed them in fellowship or engaging actively the students. And I love your point about get, you know, getting parents in the hall, the perspectives in particular, come sit in the classrooms. I mean, that is, it's far better caught than taught in terms of just seeing this education come alive. And so these are, these are excellent points uh, that I, I think, again, are really what make uh, so many parents say that phrase I hear over and over, just, you know, I was looking for a school for my child and I found a community for my family and, and how often, um, and I can say as, as a recent, um, uh, 
you know, empty nester with all of mine having gone through K-12, just honestly a little grieving my wife and I are doing right now, just really missing that vibrant classical Christian school community. And I've said to a lot of heads of late, like, my goodness, don't lose that momentum. Um, don't miss that opportunity because it is truly a, been a lifeblood for us to have just kindred spirits of other like-minded parents. So there's a lot more to classical Christian schools than just kids in classrooms, we certainly believe. You, you've probably touched on that, which is most important and central to education uh, in classical schools or any school, and that is that there is, before anything, love. Uh, love for Christ, love for his truth, love for his word, love for his people, his church. Um, it's just 1 Corinthians 13, taken seriously. You've mentioned parents. Uh, I found a school. I looked for a school, found a community. The, the way that, that reminded me of something that happened to me when I was a young headmaster. A woman, you know, about thirty, was coming through the school with her her six year old or so, and she wanted to take a tour. And um, we had learned that one of the best things to do was eventually in the tour set the parent in an upper school, like high school level literature or history seminar, and just have them sit in on a seminar. And that's what we did. And she, I think, watched some 11th graders discussing some, some, some novel. And she came out of that class and she said, uh, I have an English degree. I could never do what I just saw those students do. And I saw the warmth and the love and the friendship and the, and the, the smiles and the, the knowing glances. And I, I where do I sign up? You know, but it wasn't about the curriculum. It was about the students. Uh, another, and another woman once said, uh, another mom, she said, I didn't know I, this is what I was looking for, but this is what, I was look, what I'm looking for. And it wasn't the classical curriculum she was commenting on. She was talking about love, good cheer, warm relations, students who were uh, at peace and enjoying one another, orderliness, warmth, vibrancy, spirit of celebration. Um, you know, it's, it's love in which the classical curriculum grows. It's the soil in which it grows. And I think sometimes, understandably to some degree, in the early years of the renewal of classical education, we became so serious about recovering the, the classical curriculum, say, of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, that we were tempted to kind of forget how, how the primacy of love and community. And so, if our kids speak in the tongues of Greek and Latin but have not love, it will profit them nothing. <laughs> well, and I'm not sure, like, recovering the lost tools, that title, like, we're, we're not just, what about the tool makers, the tool, I mean, the, the purveyors of the tool, not just the tool. And I think you're right. I think we need to rethink that from our marketing to our storytelling because that's what's attracting people. That's what's beautiful about what we do. Well, Chris, why don't we take a, a break? I want to come back. You, you've I thought very helpful in your article talked about the three kinds of friendship uh, referencing Aristotle. And it'd be interesting just to think about how do we frame up types of friendship? Because I think the deepest, richest friendship is what we have in classical Christian schools and lightness on sort of Aristotle's understanding of friendship. Yeah. The, well, the etymology helps. Uh, first of all, you know, uh, you, many know that amo, amare in, in Latin means to love. And amakitia means friendship, and it's amor means love. So there's a relationship there that um, a friend is someone that you love, and this is the this is true also in Greek. It's uh, you know from uh, philos uh, phile is you know, friend, and uh, it's from philia, which means which is love. So when you would call someone a friend, you you would call you would call that person someone that you love. 
So um, it's it's amica in Latin for a female friend and amicos like amiga and amigo in Spanish. You you still hear the word love in those languages. So love is love is present and um, love must lead. Aristotle noted, however, that there seemed to be three ways. He's a keen observer. So it's in his book, The, the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, it's book eight where he talks about friendship. And as a keen observer, he's just, he's noted a lot of things. And he noted that we tend to be attracted to people for three basic reasons. And there may be others, but these certainly are true. And see if you don't think so. One is we, we, we're attracted to friends who are, who are useful, useful friends, people who benefit us in various ways, practical ways, helpful ways. And uh, the, in, in one of my articles, I use the illustration of, of, of a friend who's got a pickup truck. You know, everybody needs a friend who has a pickup truck. And I have a friend named Greg, and he's got a pickup truck. And, uh, you know, about two or three times a year, I ask him to borrow it. And he, he cheerfully loans it to me. I cheerfully fill it up with gas. Uh, it's a win-win. He, he's, he's generous. He likes to share it. He's not using it every day. And it's so helpful to me. And now I don't have to go buy a pickup truck. Uh, so we we need friends who have can be of use to us, and so sometimes in business we say it's not you know who you know or what you know it's who you know because networks matter. Okay, that's true, and so he's not disparaging it. He's not saying that you just need friends so that you can use them, but he's noting that we are attracted to people who have skills, benefits, abilities, possessions that that can help us. And in education, isn't this the case? So if you have a friend who is quick at geometry and not only learns geometry quickly and well, but is, is good at explaining it and just has a, apparently a mathematical or geometric mind, if you're sitting next to a student like that, is that a blessing to you or not? It should be, right? We might be tempted to envy, uh, but Sertelange says in his book, The Intellectual Life, he says there's only one attitude we should have in the presence of someone who is superior to us in these contexts. And he says that's gratitude because his gift is your gift because you're in the same community. You're in the same class. So uh, good classical educators, uh, realizing this, um, encourage uh, students to teach one another and to help one another, to work together. Um, there are times, you know, there's a maxim in Latin, docendo discimus, which means by teaching we learn. Having that, that, that quick geometry student who also has a generous heart uh, help coach, teach uh, other students is a, is a blessing and a very good thing for everyone. So there's a useful friend, and then Aristotle goes on to say there's also the friend who is the pleasing friend. Uh, this is the friend who just delights you. Uh, maybe not. Maybe this person isn't bringing you anything kind of practically useful, but boy, are they a good storyteller. Uh, you know, boy, can they play the guitar well, and boy, this person can sing, and this person can tell a joke. You know, and you know, this person can do magic tricks. This person can do backflips. You know, it just you, we all have friends like this. They walk into the room, and you know, you're, you're kind of you're 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 lightened because uh, this person just pleases you in various ways. And of course, this can happen in an educational context in, the, in any kind of community. But finally, he says there's a, the highest form of friendship is the virtuous friend. And this is the friend who helps you to become better. Better 
a better person, better in terms of your own virtues. In other words, the virtues of this person begin to rub off and, and inspire you as a model. And this, this person may also be a useful person and a pleasing person. For example, if you have a friend who's a, a great guitarist and you know, a songwriter and you know, pleases you with music and so on, well, that person has probably got some virtues as well. This person has probably been attentive. This person's probably been disciplined and industrious. This person's probably learned from other musicians and knows how to work with other people. This person has some heightened aesthetic sensibilities. Well, that can inspire you. And that, that guitarist, say, virtue of attention and discipline might actually end up inspiring you as a painter or as a mathematician or as a linguist, because you you can see the virtue of attention and discipline being transferable, but embodied in a friend. So we need virtuous friends, most of all. It strikes me, no, that, that's a very helpful dif, you know, way of differentiating. And you know, you talked in your article too, just about you know, the notion of how many, so how many friends can we have like numerically, but then the quality of that friendship. And it, I mean, it strikes me in that in Aristotle's uh, three three types of friends that most of us probably have. If you just said, "Hey, who are your friends?" We'd probably find lots of useful friends, and we'd probably have fewer pleasing, present, pleasant friends, and then maybe very, very few of those who make us a better person. And I mean, I would think they're not equally um, discoverable in our lives. You have to work harder to find the ones that make you better. That's a really interesting observation, Davies, because. It raises the question, how should you select your friends? Um, because, it's, first of all, I think maybe the virtuous friends are rarer. Uh, so it's just statistically more likely that you would choose other friends. But when you find someone who is virtuous, um, boy, that, 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 that's special. So you want to draw near. And, and again, I just want to underline that Aristotle says a virtuous friend is going to be a pleasing friend and is going to be a useful friend. So there seems to be kind of a cumulative a gathering here of, of kinds of friendship, but the highest level would be the virtuous friend. I was gonna say, there's no guarantee, obviously, in any community you're gonna have all of you're gonna have every kind of friend in a classical Christian school. But I think this is one of those, again, sometimes overlooked by parents who will say things especially if they're really new and understanding educational, they'll say something, you know, we're going to put our, it doesn't really matter what school we put our kids in because we've got a really good church and we're going to, you know, really model things well in the home. Not understanding the power of a peer-to-peer influence, certainly as the, as the children get older. And then you, you ask yourself the question, well, where are those virtuous, make you better, better person friends in the community that your child is in? And if they're not in that community, there's probably a really good chance they're going to be shaped in a way that's not uh, what you would hope for. And I would hope most classical Christian schools do have a higher level of virtuous friends. So, Which leads to another question, which is, to what degree are classical schools, teachers, and leaders aiming at virtue formation as one of the chief purposes for our existence? Uh, in, in the classical tradition, many definitions of what education even is include this definition that, that, it, that education is the cultivation of virtue. It's helping humans to become more fully human, more, more capacitated to do what only humans can do through the study of the liberal arts, using word and number. 
and great books and the great ideas coming acquainted with the treasury of human wisdom that leads us to become formed. So education as formation formed as the best versions of ourselves. And that means virtue. That means human excellence generally. And in a Christian tradition, it also means holiness. Um, those things have to be primary, it seems to me. It, it's primary in the classical Christian tradition. And it's, oft, it's often, however, relegated to the secondary or the tertiary because we get too busy about other matters that are also important. But therefore, it, pull, it raises again another question. That is the importance of the, re, of the, the teacher-student relationship modeling what virtue is there. So talk a little bit about that, because again, I think this is maybe a new way to think on the, on the part of many of us grew up with the teacher was just sort of, you know, the old sage on the stage and we're just there sort of bored, bored to death, taking notes, waiting for the test. I mean, obviously that's not our schools, but this totally upends the idea of teachers in a very different role and friendship's part of that. So carry on with it. This is an interesting idea. Yeah. And it, and it in no way really detracts from teaching an art or teaching important content and skills in a class because those can be channels and opportunities in which virtue is actually modeled and, and you know, communicated, cultivated as well. So it's not like you have to kind of choose and say, well, well, I'm going to do 20 minutes of virtue cultivation and then I'll do 20 minutes of teaching history and literature. No, history and literature teach virtue naturally. Um, but there's a kind of ongoing global sense in which the teacher sees himself as wanting to call forth virtue in his students and has to model it the best he or she can. Uh, in other words, let's just take, the, take attention. Um, one of the chief intellectual virtues of a student is the ability to attend, to actually see and open and concentrate, and, and patiently so. And so if the teacher is impatient and never attends to the student's work, uh, he's already modeling impatience and a kind of cursory way of just moving through things. If the teacher never contemplates, never actually takes time to engage in wonder and curiosity and contemplation around something like the Pythagorean theorem or the fact that apparently two parallel, two parallel lines never touch, uh, you know, to wonder at that or to wonder at a stick bug you know, in second grade, it looks like a stick, but it moves. It's actually a bug, but it's a stick. You know, if we don't wonder at these things, the students will not develop their own habits of contemplation. So I just want to point out that there isn't a dichotomy between teaching the liberal arts and great content or science or literature or history and uh, virtue cultivation. But the teacher must be the model of it. The teacher has to embody it. But I think you're hitting on something really important, which is, again, in the eyes of the parent and in the eyes of the administrator, that that our goal is not just academic, albeit with great books and higher quality than the street, the school down the street. But we're really in the business of, uh, of forming deep friendships at kind of Aristotle's third level there that really form us and make us into a better person, a virtuous person. So the, the kind of the practical question, where in the should we as schools think about really kind of the pragmatics of, of formulating healthy friendships, because we all know that, especially you take a child from kindergarten to 12th grade, there's a whole lot of things that can happen. You know, the old fifth grade girl thing or the bully thing or whatever, you know, the concerns that's fallen humans living in community. So should we do things like actively say, we need to teach conflict resolution because that's your Matthew 18. Do we have to, 
should we go that far to actively call that out and teach it as part of the as part of the expression of the education itself or or if not it seems like we're going to have inferior friendships potentially what what do you think about that i think that uh in any kind of cultural moment as we're looking at the conditions on the ground we may have to uh plan for some kind of direct teaching and instruction regarding things like conflict resolution um uh, what what it, what what good behavior looks like and is in a classroom. I think there can be places where we actually teach it, um, and and but I think it also and probably more effectively will happen as it is kind of organically revealed in the study of literature and history and and Bible study in a Christian school, because all of these issues are addressed in narrative form. Uh, in the lives of people, the lives of uh, biblical characters, and the lives of uh, you know Elizabeth and Darcy, uh, you know it's going to be it's going to be there in all of the in all of the literature. You're going to see virtue embodied in the stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis, uh, the Tolkien's uh, um, you know trilogy. Yeah, many of us, I would say this is true largely of my kids that you know their moral imagination was cultivated to maybe more than the Bible by Lewis and Tolkien. By the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, they, they my kids live these live these books out, and and uh, fantasize about them. So, you know, you could say how how did how did Lucy manage that conflict, and what did Peter do when he encountered Edmund after Edmund had succumbed to the White Witch? Um, you know, how did they handle that conflict? You know, they're, they're, in other words, it's there too. It's in our curriculum as well. Well, and this is a profound point, Chris, because I think again, if you if you're kind of new to classical Christian, and you're kind of buying into basically the way the world addresses friendship and virtue formation, it tends to be we teach these academic classes, and then we have sort of either as a separate class, kind of the character class, or we do it as sort of a sprinkle on the top type of what you're talking about, which is absolutely encouraging uh, and surprising, I think, to many people who've not grown up in this, in, in, the, in the fabric itself of the curriculum. Why we read the old dusty books is because they do give us the heroes and heroines who had to navigate life and find the richness of, of deep and abiding friendship. That's That gives a vision for us for something more than what the world around us has. I love that it's coming out of the curriculum itself. It is, and uh, so then, but then we mean, you know, we need teachers who know the curriculum. We need teachers who have read the literature, who know scripture, who who could pull out, say, the story of Jonathan and David as a, as a great example of friendship, or Christ and his disciples as an illustration of friendship, or Paul and Barnabas and their conflict and you know resolution and so forth, or Paul and Peter. Uh, so that there's there's lots of great places to go where we can. Where, where we can learn these things. In fact, you know, the, the virtue of prudence, that, that cardinal virtue that is about knowing what is real. Prudence, uh, I learned a couple of years ago, is a shortened version of providence. Uh, it, it's, it's this ability to see and know what is actually real and then to know what to do in any, any, any situation in various circumstances. And prudence is often uh, figured as a female who is looking into a mirror. And in some instances, like the the one in the Vatican room painted by Raphael, Prudence also has the face of an old man painted on the back of her head. She's looking backwards, and she looks like she's about 22. She's young, 
And she's looking into this mirror and she's serene, but also sober. Because she, and, and the image in the mirror that she's looking at is not her own face, but it's the face of the old man behind her. She has the wisdom of the ages because she's looked backwards and studied history and literature. And she's learned the human heart, which means she's learned her own heart. And what she's learned about it is not all good, but she's learned. And she, at 22, might as well be 122. Um, so, you know, that's what we want our students to, to have as well. Well, I mean, and as humans, we're all, we all want to follow. We all want to have someone we look, look into. And I think, again, just reminding us is helpful that the curriculum itself awakens us to aspire for more, to see best practices. And then we get to live it out in the classrooms and the hallways. And it, and it does, I mean, that's, you know, my experience has been, it, it's, you're doing that. And then yes, you need to attend to the real uh, times when there is actual fracturing in the community and in really sorting things out. And that's where a lot of character is taught in the midst of all that. So there is a, uh, there's a lot there that, that we can consider. Why don't we take another quick break? I want to come back. One of the things that I think might be interesting to get your thoughts on is just what's the role of the teacher to the student? Is it sort of the youth minister kind of role where they're really cozy with the students and, you know, trying to get into their lives and pray for them? And, and then I've seen the other extreme of absolutely not. We are here to only talk academics. We'll do a nice little token prayer at the beginning, and then we're not getting involved in all that. That's the parents and the church's domain. I think there's a lot of confusion and tension there. Speak to us a little bit about the teacher-student relationship. What should it really look like optimally? Yeah, it's an important question and sometimes hard given our own experiences and models to know what kind of paradigm to use. But uh, I think the right paradigm is to say, you know, a teacher is an, a more mature student and that a student is an immature teacher. Well, I know that's, that's kind of just playing with words. But what I mean is that the, the zeal to know and love the true, the good, and the beautiful should be especially present in the teacher. And by the way, the Latin word for eagerness to know is studium, is where we get our word student. So a student, ideally, is someone who is eager to know, to learn, to love the true, the good, and the beautiful. And does it, is, is a teacher not that? No, a teacher is just a student who's been a student longer, such that he can now teach some of the things that he's come to know and love. And a student who is coming to know and love anything uh, is going to want to share it and therefore becomes a teacher, even if it's a teacher with a, a, you know, a, small, a small case T. And we do this with coffee, for goodness sake. You know, if, if I were to tell you, Davies, here in Harrisburg, there is this one coffee shop. And if you go into this coffee shop, Little Amps, and you ask for a, 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 you know, a, a medium-sized latte, make sure you get a, the medium latte with four shots. It's the perfect blend of froth and milk and, 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 and espresso. And whatever bean they're using, it's amazing. And you're like, you're interested, <laughs> right? We we want we share those four, things. Four shots <laughs> would probably make any ca caffeine beverage amazing. But um, yes, I, I'll have to try that next time in town. <laughs> so students will share. And now August, Augustine's been really helpful here because Augustine, in his small book on the the education of new catechisms, uh, cate uh, cate uh, catechumens, talks about teaching. And it's a small book; you can find it online. But he says that the teacher when he teaches and has to adjust his teaching to a student, finds himself reliving what he has learned such that the student, as it were, teaches him and speaks to him the truth that he is actually trying to bring to the student. And he compares it to 
you know, the way we show friends who visit our town uh, a, a new, uh, the beauties of, of, our, of our town, our city, or our countryside. And he says, you know, you become familiar like I have with, say, uh, Gettysburg National Park, because I live near that, such that when I take a friend to see it, their, uh, their astonishment and appreciation of the beauty of that park brings it back to me so that I relive it and see something that had become familiar as fresh again. And so he says the teacher and the student then begin to dwell in one another, and the student actually becomes the teacher of the teacher because the teacher reteaches you and gives you new eyes to see it and even deepens your understanding. So that's the kind of friendship that we'd want to see between student and teacher. And when that happens, well, it's kind of magical. And, you know, I think at least you and I have had some of our kids come back and say that about some of the teachers they've had, that they've become friends of those teachers. Well, and inevitably... It's because the teachers, there's, it's more than just they're good at transferring information. It's because there's a contagious joy of discovery. And I think about privilege I've had leading, I think, four to five you know, senior trips through Europe and mentioned Raphael, being at the Vatican and going into the Raphael rooms and looking at the, the art on the wall. And just, I get excited. I've been in there five times, but each time I'm watching kind of vicariously through the students discover something that's actually a mural at the school they've seen many times, but there it is. You know, yeah. you just have this- Absolutely kind of co-celebrating experience of, of jointly going through And they this show together. you things and, that you didn't see, right? Like you're looking at the painting. They did, right. And they'll, right. You're, trying to, right. you're trying to give them eyes to see what they can't see, and then they open your eyes right. to see even more deeply. That's exactly right, which makes it even more exciting. So, well, let's, let me kind of cl close this out with kind of just a, if you're standing in a room of parents and you've been in these environments many times, you're looking out there, and we know statistically that as adults, we've talked a lot about the students, but as adults today, Unfortunately, it's not all that far off from students. I mean, from the students themselves. I mean, our culture is filled with isolated people. I mean, that tends to be one of the great uh, epidemics, really, of our culture today. It's just people that are, um, as Putman wrote years ago in his book, Bowling Alone. I mean, we're, we're lonely in crowds. We're just walking about with people around us, but we're really not deeply connected. What are some just practical things that you would say to parents who uh you know, in terms of what their expectations should be, how many, how many friends can we have? And I think you mentioned maybe in the Substack. you know, most people probably have a hundred to 150 acquaintances and only 10 or 12 are really close. And then only fewer that, I mean, what's realistic, number one. And then number two, just what are just some encouraging best practices maybe you give us as adults? It's an important question. Uh, yeah, that's this, you know, anthropologists have studied this clan size and so on and sociologists. And yeah, apparently 100 to 150 is about what the human brain, the human person, given our limitations of living in space and time, can handle. And then you know, it starts to narrow down to a closer group of friends. It might be around 10. And then from that, a, a, you know, a, a smaller group, not unlike what you see Christ doing with the disciples, the 12 disciples and three who apparently were pretty close with him, Peter, James, and John. But in terms of practically speaking to that parent, you know, you, you can't do everything. So you have to choose wisely. And many parents are busy. Many parents are, um, in some, case, some cases, both the mother and the father are working. But I would say this, uh, Sundays need to be days of rest. Uh, follow our church tradition and take Sundays off to recreate, to read, to be with, to be with your family and to be with friends. Some of the practical things I think you do is uh, find one or two things at the school 
that you enjoy, where your gifts match up, your gifts and interests match up. Like, let's say there's a hiking club and you love hiking, you love the outdoors, do that. Become a part of it. And you'll find that there'll be three or four other parents doing the same, share your interest, and then you're getting to know the kids in a new context. Maybe you love a sport and you could become a part-time assistant coach. That can be uh, really helpful. And the same thing with academics. Let's say you're an attorney and you love case law and uh, trial law. You could be a part of what they do in the, a mock trial team or uh, you know some kind of a rhetoric course. Uh, volunteer w- where you have gifts, skills, and ability. Um, another thing I would say is uh, get start a book club. Be, be, start it. You know, do it. Do it on the low. You know, don't don't try to to do something. Don't try to make it a graduate seminar. But find four or five people who would like to read. You know, some of these great books and meet weekly or biweekly and have a good time doing it. You know, have some beer or do it at a pub. If, you know, the group of guys need to do it at a pub and sip some, sip something, that's fine. Or someone's backyard. Uh, but, you know, get together when, when you're doing something like fishing or drinking or hiking, make, make some, some book a part of the, a part of the, a part of the, the, the enterprise. Um, and then I would, I would say, reach out. Like we're isolated often because we feel um, a little awkward you know, trying to reach out to people, especially men. But you know, if I were at your school, I would need to be able to say, I need to have this courage to say to you, you know, in the car line or at a soccer game, hey Davies, do you like bourbon? Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if we could get together with, you know, and, and have some bourbon and talk about, you know, Aristotle's ethics and, you know, would you be interested in that? There need to be, we need to at least, and and if you're if you're kind of new to classical education, you need to be brave enough to simply say, "Look, I'm new, but I want to weigh in. I want I want to know how I can connect." Uh, another thing I'd say is, read the books that your kids are reading, even if it's children's literature. If you've never read Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, for example, um, make that that could be some of the books that you read. And then finally, there's a lot of just. Things we can do as humans that really do complement what we're trying to do, raising our kids in the church and in a classical Christian school. Like going to a great play, you know, like like going to a, a great concert, going to a good museum and preparing before you go, and then having a good meal uh, before or after. Or like the Oppenheimer film came out. Like, okay, read a little biography of Oppenheimer, learn about you know, something about atomic theory, and to go watch the movie and then come back and have a, a film talk-back discussion with students and, and some parents. Uh, open your home. If you don't know exactly what to do, but you have a, you know, a decent home, open it up and say, we will have a movie night at our house, and we're going to have pizza, and we're going to watch this movie, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, you know, I'd look for those kind of creative ways of matching up your interest. Well, and I appreciate the fact, you know, you're, you're, you know, you've got to kind of engage at the level that you're at. So if, if classical is totally intimidating to you, and I know for a lot of parents, they look over the shoulder of their child and they think, wow, not only did I get kind of ripped off of my education, I have no idea how to even engage this. So I love the idea. Maybe it is just opening your home up, cook up some great food and bring in the, one of the high school teachers to kind of run that conversation or to watch the movie or, but I love, it's really in a spirit of fellowship and community, which again is I think the antidote to so many challenges young people are facing today is they're just isolated and they're disconnected, especially from those who are older 
um, on the journey with him. So Chris, this is, this is great practical advice and I really appreciate yeah, your being back here for the fifth time on Basecamp Live. Uh, for folks that have not discovered all the amazing things that you guys do, talk just for a second here at the end about uh, some of the resources that CAP provides and other great opportunities for parents. Oh yeah, you know, I've admired what you've been doing for quite some time. Um, we were joking um, a while back about you know a conversation we had with Ken Myers, uh, gosh, 15 years ago. Uh, but uh, what, what, I, what I would say is, um, you know, we'll be broadcasting this same same conversation on my 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 renewing classical education podcast, and I'm just pleased to do that. And uh, I would recommend um, people taking a look at Renewing Classical Education. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a podcast you can find kind of anywhere on the typical, in the typical channels. And then some of what I do, I also present on classicalu.com, which is an online teacher training platform. We have about 85 courses there. I have maybe three or four of them. But it's really worth looking at classicalu.com if you're a homeschool educator, a classical school educator. And there's a section there called Parent U that might be of interest. I'm really interested to hear what you're going to be doing uh, in the future uh, regarding parent education because it's such a need. And then I would say um, one other thing comes to mind is, um, well, classicalacademicpress.com for some of the curricula we produce at Classical Academic Press. And then uh, my Substack. if you want to read some of the things I'm writing about, you can find me at christopherperrin.substack.com. These are great. You, are, you, are, you have many... Uh many doors that people can come find you through. So and a lot of great resources uh, for parents, for educators alike. So Chris, thanks again for your wisdom and insights on friendship. There's a lot of a good solid wisdom here that I think we're all hungry for and grateful to be a part of the Classical Christian School community where this is so rich and so prioritized. So thanks again for your time and look forward to having you back on for a sixth interview at some point. <laughs> You're so welcome. Well, I look forward to that. Thanks, Chris. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.